Welcome to the Monday Morning Phone Call Podcast. I am your host, Paul Joslin. Every preacher knows when they're teetering on the edge of a topic that will result in receiving a phone call on Monday morning. Instead of backing away from those topics, this podcast exists to work through these polarizing conversations and hopefully spark further discussion. There are few topics more polarizing in our current context than politics. On this second season of the Monday Morning Phone Call, we're going to spend uh, four episodes talking about how to navigate our polarized political landscape that we find ourselves in. We live in a country where gospel identity is challenged by our political system. How do we navigate the tension and remain true to our identity in Christ? Today, I'm excited to let you know that Larry Renault is taking the wheel of the podcast and he is interviewing Scott Klingsmith, who is the Assistant Professor of Intercultural Studies and the Missiologist in Residence at Denver Seminary. He has served as a missionary overseas and in the States for over 35 years and brings a global perspective to the podcast today that I think you'll find really helpful. The focus of their conversation is on the history of Christians in politics. What is the political engagement of Christians throughout history looked like, and how should Christians engage today? They also cover the much-debate topic of whether or not America is a Christian nation. We hope this is a helpful discussion as we come closer to the election, and we hope you enjoy another conversation on the Monday Morning Phone Call. We're joined today by uh, Dr. Scott Klingsmith, and it's my privilege to introduce Scott. He is the missiologist in residence at Denver Seminary. He's been there about 12 years. He's also been a missionary with World Venture um, for how many years, Scott, with World Venture? 35. 35 years. He's got a PhD in, uh, from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago. And uh, Scott and his wife, Carol, were among Waterstones. Uh, well, actually, I think you said you were the first missionary Yep. that Waterstone took on to yep. support. First ones they sent out. Yeah, and uh, so one of the reasons we wanted Scott to sit in on this great topic today, uh, Is America a Christian Nation, is that he brings a, a global perspective uh, and has lived in uh, many places where uh, I think he could speak to American, the, the Republic of America, so to speak, from different perspectives. Scott's wife, Carol, uh, went home to heaven uh, in early 2019. Uh, she for uh, years had struggled with uh, multiple sclerosis and died of complications uh, in in early 2019. So Scott, uh, uh, let's begin by just maybe giving us a word about Carol, helping us to know who she was in your life. Carol was a a great partner. So she she had MS for close to 30 years and uh, struggled. She lost a lot physically in the last decade or so, but uh, she was a joyful person. She was an absolute model of someone who didn't let uh, the disease get her down. That her concern um, all of her life and in the darkest times was that God be glorified. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was a great model to me yeah. and to lots of other people. She was just so much fun to be around. Jan and I have great memories of trying to beat her in Ticket to Ride. <laughs> she would clean our clocks every time. <laughs> <laughs> she was she was pure joy. Yep. Yeah, she was greatly missed. Uh, here's one other interesting thing about Scott. Before we dive into the topic, Scott was Waterstone's first worship pastor. <laughs> so, Scott, why don't you tell us kind of that story about how that all started? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, 
so a group of people came down from Bear Valley, including uh, Nick as the pastor. And a short time after that, I was asked to consider to come down as the worship leader. And so uh, the first time Carol and I came to visit, uh, just to see how this would be, I was met at the door by Nick, and uh, he said, All right, the person who's supposed to lead worship today didn't show up, so would you <laughs> lead worship for us? <laughs> so at that so, point, it was kind of a done deal. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. <laughs> and how long did you do that um, after that rough start? <laughs> I lose track, two yeah. or three years. Yeah. yeah. Um, that was yeah. during seminary, and then when we were appointed with World Venture, then we were on our way to Europe. Yeah, those were fun years, basically when we were a church plant yep. in the day. Yeah. yeah. Good. Well, Scott, I'm so excited to have you. Thank you. Thank you for being willing to come on our Monday morning podcast. And yeah, my um, privilege. We uh, have an interesting topic. We decided to call it, Is America a Christian Nation? Uh, that'll be part of what we talk about, but we just wanted to throw that controversial topic out there to get to get more listeners. <laughs> <laughs> what we're really going to chase down fairly hard is this idea of what's the history of evangelicals and uh, politics. So we're going to first walk through just a bit of history about how Christians throughout uh, many cultures and times and places have engaged, specifically that part of politics we would call government. The one other thing I think we want to do before we jump into the history is just briefly define what an evangelical is. I, I think that's always a good thing to do because the, the term is used in so many different ways and in some degree has even become a political label. Um, which is probably not the way you and I or Waterstone would use it as a political labor uh, label. So, if you were asked, Scott, what it, what is an evangelical from a theological perspective? How would you answer that question? Yeah, that's a good question because, in many ways, the term has been co-opted. Um, it has by society at large uh, to define be defined politically. So basically, we say an evangelical is a Bible-believing Christian, mm. someone who is committed to. Uh, the authority of Scripture, who's committed to uh, apostolic doctrine, uh, to uh, salvation by faith. Mm -hmm. um, in, in many ways, a historic Christian. Yeah. And uh, as we have this topic, it gets a little more complicated because we don't really talk about evangelicals as such until the 18th century. Right. Right. And so yeah. for much of our discussion here today, it, we're talking about Christians. Yeah. And uh, it gets more specific when we get closer to us. Yeah. Um, and but, we'll, we'll point that out when we get to kind of that uh, point in uh, at least American history yeah. where yeah. the term evangelical started to rise. But yeah, so let's jump in. Let's, let's talk about how Bible-believing Christians or, who believed apostolic doctrine uh, have engaged government over history. And so we want to go back way early to the early church uh, and name some names that I think had some interesting thoughts about Christians and government. Yep. One would be a, a guy named Justin Martyr, um, who I, I had, he was born in 100 AD and lived to 165 AD. And um, what's interesting is that Justin, um, at one point in his life, he moved to Rome and he founded a Christian school. And then uh, it, while he was there and leading this Christian school, he wrote uh, what's called Justin's First Apology, and it was addressed to the emperor Antonius Pius, 
the emperor, the Roman emperor, yep. and uh, published in 155. What Justin Martyr tried to do was explain the Christian faith so that the government officials would not think Christianity is a threat to uh, Rome or even, and, and, and he was hoping that then Christianity could be treated as a legal religion. Exactly. Uh, and so um, that's, that's one example. Did you have anything you'd want to add about Justin? Um, Justin is, so he's called Justin Martyr because he was eventually <laughs> yeah. killed for his faith. He was. Um, but he was an example of several early apologists, not people apologizing, but yeah. defending the faith, and much of their apologetic was uh, how we live. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you call us criminals, but we live in ways that um, are pure. Um, there was a, another letter to uh, Diognetus from about the same time as Justin was writing, and he's saying, you know, we live, we look just like every other citizen except for the way we, we live. Um, uh, we, um, we marry, we have children, but we don't expose them. He writes, they share their meals, but not their wives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, they live in the flesh, but they're not governed by the desires of the flesh. Mm-hmm. So, so he and then Tertullian, who was a North African mm-hmm. uh, church father, um, you call us criminals, but examine the way we live. Yeah, yeah. And one, one great story about Tertullian that I came across was that uh, during the Roman Empire of his day, he lived 155 to 240 AD. There was an herb used in the empire that would cause abortions, and abortion was quite common in the Roman Empire during this time. So, and infanticide. Yes, and infanticide. And so, uh, what Tertullian did was not only preach against that form of abortion and infanticide, but he actually began to encourage the churches that he served and had authority over to uh, start a common treasury, and that treasury would be used to, and I quote, to aid boys and girls who have no parents and to support their adopting parents. So he even got upstream of the whole abortion problem and began to uh, guide his church in ways that they could engage a significant societal problem. Yeah, and it's, it's probably important to say at this point uh, they didn't have options to be involved in politics as such. You know, there right. wasn't any voting. Yeah. But, uh, you know, many of these letters were written to government officials. So it was in, an engagement in larger societal issues in a political kind of way. Mm. So Justin and Tertullian both writing to, uh, in one case, the emperor, and in another case, to local officials yeah. uh, defending Christians uh, based on the way they lived. Yep, yep. I, I have a sense we could talk for a while. On, <laughs> this is this is fun. But uh, the next uh, age of church history is the monastic age, and um, what they were known for was really two things: as they engaged government, or really didn't didn't engage government much at all, but more indirectly. First, they were the most educated class in that society, and so could write and read. And so they copied great works of literature um, and even great works of history. Uh, one uh, man in around 700 wrote, uh, Bede wrote the Ecclesiastical History of the English People, uh, but still uh, in print today. Yep. And then um, another, uh, so preserving writings as well as some of their writings would be used by governments in certain ways. Thomas Aquinas in the 12th century um, and Summa Theologicae. 
wrote about, uh, kept Augustine's just war theory alive, and governments would often refer to that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting in that respect because the monastics are normally known for their withdrawal from the world. Yeah. Uh, but that there actually was still some influence. Yep, they did. From there, we move into the time of the Reformation, Scott. And how would you say the Reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwigli, um, and the Anabaptists, how did they approach government as Yeah, so, so we're talking uh, 16th century, uh, the beginning, 1517 for Luther, uh, Zwingli, and Calvin in Switzerland. And uh, for them, there really was a marriage of church and state. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the church should have influenced uh, the way the state operated, and uh, the state should have enforced uh, the morality that the church was uh, advocating. And, uh, and so uh, for the what we call the magisterial uh, reformers, uh, politics and church basically were one and the same. Yeah. Uh, the contrast, though, is with a, a group in, uh, in Switzerland that uh, came to be called the Anabaptists, uh, leading to Mennonites and, and a variety today uh, who really were advocating uh, for a few things, theologically for believers' baptism, mm -hmm. uh, ecclesiastically that the church was made up of professing believers and not everybody that had been baptized by a, as a baby in a particular region, and in particular separation of church and state. Yeah. And uh, to, to say that uh, the state had no role in... Uh, regulating the church, uh, really ideas that came to uh, came to the fore in in the United States yeah. in its early days. They're kind of our spiritual ancestors in a lot of ways. Our roots, yeah, yeah. not in, in a lot of ways, not, but yeah. um, <laughs> we're influenced by them in ways we don't realize. Right? And would you Would you say too, Scott? It'd be fair to to say about uh, particularly Calvin and Luther. There's some bruises on their uh, reputations for different ways that they tried to mm -hmm. bring church and state together. Yeah. I think of Calvin as government, the Michael Servetus uh, yep. incident where he put him to death because he felt he was a heretic, but did it as the government. Yeah, um, yeah maybe, this is, maybe this is the place to say <clears throat> that any time a given church has been in power, it's been a persecutor. Mm. And so that was true in, in uh, the Reformation. It was true for the Catholics. It's uh, true in Orthodox lands. Yeah. Where Orthodox are in power, they persecute Baptists. Where Lutherans are in power, they persecute everybody else. Mm -hmm. Where Catholics are in power, they persecute everybody else. Yeah. And, uh, and so really it's only, uh, in many ways, only in the United States where there's been a, uh, a competition between churches where there has been a lack of persecution. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah. so throughout history, there's, there's been this real strong identification, yeah. church and state, uh, church exercising power, uh, the state exercising uh, authority over citizens in the name of the church. Mm. Yeah, and, and rough going. In, in Lots those, of places where yeah. it's been rough going. Yeah. Let's move into the uh, 18th and 19th century and just hit two... Uh, uh, Two of our heroes, we could say, William Wilberforce leading uh, the liberation of slavery in, in England, as well as a missionary named William Carey and what he did in India. Scott, just tell us about those two. So, uh, so here is where we really get to uh, self-identified evangelicals. Yes. Uh, so uh, Wilberforce and a group called the Clapham Sect, uh, a group of um, 
kind of upper-class um, evangelical Anglicans uh, in the um, 18th century, uh, really leading the fight towards the abolition of the slave trade. Mm -hmm. um, Wilberforce is kind of no, well known. There's been a, a, a film, Amazing Grace, that maybe people have seen. Uh, he worked for um, 18 years to uh, get the slave trade outlawed through parliament. So he was a parliamentarian. He was a politician himself and uh, working with other politicians to get the slave trade outlawed. Mm. Um, and uh, at the same time, that w it wasn't a one-issue uh, one uh, group. They were involved in the reform of the penal system. Uh, yep. Interestingly, uh, Wilberforce also was one of the founders of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Really? I did not know that. And, wow. so, uh, and <laughs> so they had broad social concerns. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, and worked within the government to enforce those. He, he waged his influence there. So uh, a long, long uh, battle for the abolition of the slave trade and mm -hmm. eventually for the abolition of slavery in, in uh, the British Empire mm -hmm. uh, a couple of decades later. Yeah. And, and then Carey, who is known as the father of modern missions, mm -hmm. but, um, and, and rightly so, went to India uh, but he was involved uh, even before he went to India in uh, agitation against the slave trade. And when he got to India, was, uh, was involved um, working uh, with the, what were the de facto government authorities, the British East India Company, uh, working to outlaw sati, mm -hmm. which was the, the burning of widows on the funeral pyre of their husbands. Oh, um, of uh, working against infanticide, against child marriage. Um, many of those uh, brides that were being burned were children. Wow. Um, results of, of uh, child marriages, like really children, mm. four or five years old in some cases, mm. uh, under 10 years old, um, wow. hundreds of thousands. And so uh, he was working uh, to get those things outlawed as well. So, uh, so um, he's known as a missionary for translating the Bible, for preaching, for establishing churches, but at the same time, with, without seeing any kind of conflict between them, uh, working against these, uh, these really horrible social issues. So there we see Christians, as evangelicals, yep. uh, using and leveraging influence, not, not only in the church world, but... Um, in, in areas of government and exactly. society where, where yep. they had uh, open doors. Yep. Um, let's move into more of you and I, our lifetime here a little bit, uh, the yep. 20th century um, and, um, and, and into America and yep. the, the influence of American evangelicals. So why don't we uh, begin with um, kind of when an evangelical was placed on the cover of Newsweek magazine, <laughs> Jimmy Carter. Actually, it was Jimmy Carter, his brother, Billy, and I think Lily, was it Lillian or the mother? I, I, I can still see the cover. Yeah, Lillian uh, was the mother. Yeah. And uh, so let's talk about the, the evangelicals and Jimmy Carter. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so Jimmy Carter was a Democrat. Yeah, he was. And a self-proclaimed born-again Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, for many people today, th that seems like a total contradiction in terms <laughs> um, for a lot of evangelicals today. Yeah. Um, but uh, Carter was 
uh, elected with strong support of evangelicals as a, as a Democrat. Mm-hmm. But in his one term of office, he also disappointed evangelicals, yeah. partly because of uh, more liberal social policies than they were expecting, partly because he just didn't seem to be very effective, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that he didn't exercise the power that he had in ways to accomplish certain things. Yeah. And so really there was a, a turn on the part of evangelicals to the right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Christian South uh, went from almost exclusively Democrat to, to largely Reagan Republican. Yeah, and how did you see that forming? How, how did that play out? Um, yeah, a lot of it was um, because, uh, I, I think because of social issues. Yeah that uh, Reagan uh, was promising evangelicals uh, on the economic side that they'd keep more money in their pocket, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, Carter was um, you know, promoting social pro- programs in government, bigger government, and Reagan was promising to, to shrink the government and to, uh, to, to, with trickle-down economics to help people keep more in their pockets. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting there... It seems to me there was something of a move from a concern for character, um, Carter as a a moral Sunday school Baptist teacher. Still teaching. Still teaching in his 90s to to Reagan, um, you know, a divorced um, former actor who had signed one of the most liberal abortion bills in the country. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there was this turn from character to almost want to say self-interest, mm. um, that uh, people started looking out more for um, for economic issues, mm-hmm. and and then obviously related to that were were social issues. Mm-hmm. So uh, really during during that Reagan time, we we see the rise of the moral majority. Moral majority, yeah. And uh, it's interesting. Uh, uh, Larry and I, in our conversation, we have discovered that the origins of moral majority are a little murky. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, at least in one iteration, mor- moral majority started out as a way for Southern, uh, Southern evangelicals, Southern fundamentalists, to protect their segregated schools hmm. uh, from government in- inter- interference. Bob Jones University and... And uh, a variety of yeah. uh, segregated Christian high schools. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Eventually, uh, several years later, actually, a concern for abortion and, and those kinds of things really came to the fore. Mm-hmm. But um, it really wasn't an, an abortion issue at the beginning. Yeah. Um, yep. Fighting for segregation, which was not a, an issue that evangelicals around the country really would rally around. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then... Um, you know, you've discovered some stuff about it was political operatives that were engaged as well. <laughs> yeah, I was reading an article in Commonweal by Kenneth Woodward, a well-known reporter for a long time with Newsweek. Um, and uh, he, he tells the story of the moral majority. He says it was essentially the work of two Catholics and a Jew, the direct male whiz Richard Vigieri, Paul Weyrich of the Committee for the Survival of a Free Congress, and uh, Howard Phillips of the Conservative Caucus. They saw how a born-again Democratic governor from the South had energized Southern fundamentalists and conservative evangelicals. And so this trio of political, conservative political operatives, they determined to win over the GOP. 
Um, and so they interviewed uh, some likely leaders and uh, picked Jerry Falwell to lead an organization that they named the Moral Majority. I had never before heard that yeah. uh, history. Uh, and, and really what you, what you see happening at that point is this marriage of evangelicals with conservative politics. Yes, yeah, which continues today. Which continues yeah. today. Yeah. So, Scott, just uh, let's take a pause here. And this is, I think, a great place for maybe for you to, uh, as a white evangelical American, uh, but yet now going over to live in Austria and uh, in Europe, tell us kind of now how your perspectives on some of this began to change as you lived outside the United States during this time. Yeah, I I think that... um... So much of what we see today is this identification of, on the part of many, of evangelical and conservative politics, mm-hmm. uh, as though anybody who is not both can't be really a Christian. Mm. And and I think uh, what what I saw. So we went we went to Austria when it was um, to work in communist countries, so in Eastern Europe. And so it was still communist times, and so believers were living under communist opposition, oppression, and sometimes persecution. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, um, and so they were having to live in this tension really of uh, much more like what the early Christians were. Um, how, do we, how do we live as Christians in a, an oppressive political system? Yeah. And you know, so they were negotiating that. But then in Austria as well, uh, Forty years before we got there was Hitler, mm, wow. and so Four years. Wow. and so uh, there was still this uh, a lot of residual effect of that. Mm-hmm. Well, today most European, most Europeans and all European countries more or less are socialist, mm-hmm. and a lot of my Christian evangelical friends see no problem with that. Yeah. That uh, you know they they would rather pay higher taxes and have a uh, more robust social net. Mm-hmm. Uh, they uh, they recognize that there are some dangers of secularism tied with socialism, but it's not uh, it's not essential to the political system. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, kind of shocking for me at times to find out, yeah, here here are these strong Bible believing. Uh, evangelistic evangelicals who are socialists. Yeah. Um, it's like, okay, can that be? <laughs> because so often uh, today the, the conversation is, you know, if somebody's not a Republican, you can't even be a Christian. Right, right. And so to find out that, that globally... Um, That's a very narrow a, perspective. It is. There are a lot of evangelicals around the world who aren't... I mean, they would be conservative in a lot of ways, certainly theologically, yeah. but uh, that there isn't this same identification of uh, conservative theology and conservative social mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, social issues or, yeah. or uh, political stances. Yeah. yeah, that's a good perspective. Yeah, that that we are bigger than we think we are. Yes, yes, and that's good. That's yeah. healthy. 
Let's move into the million-dollar question <laughs> that, that, that it kind of headlined uh, this today's, uh, and that is the question, is America a Christian nation? And we just really only have time to look at kind of two parts of that. One is to talk about the pilgrims for a minute, and then two is to talk about the founding fathers. Uh, and I think it, the, that'll get us started on a, a good conversation. So, yep. what, Scott, what would you say about 1600s, the pilgrims, uh, 1620, I guess, is when they came to? Cape Cod, Plymouth, Mass. So is America a Christian nation? Raises the question, has it always been? Because this is some of uh, of the story that is is told in conservative evangelical circles, that uh, America has always been a Christian nation, but we're we're losing that now, and somehow we have to grasp that and and bring it back. Um, The... uh, the imagery of a city on a hill mm-hmm. from Winthrop, right? John Winthrop, first governor of Massachusetts. Um, yeah. as, a, as a place where Christian values can be lived out. Yes. And, and that, was, uh, that was a sincere part of the story. They left England to be able to, to practice religion as they wanted to. Mm-hmm. What we don't realize is that religious liberty, uh, except for that flavor of it, was not part of what they were talking about. Mm. So religious liberty really is not part of our DNA as Americans. Mm. Um, in uh, Massachusetts, in Virginia, nonconformists, yeah. so Baptists, Quakers, um, anybody that wasn't either a, an Anglican in, in Virginia or a Congregationalist in Massachusetts was persecuted. Yes. So Roger Williams yeah. um, went to Rhode Island to escape persecution uh, because of his Baptist convictions. I've stood at his pulpit in yeah? Providence. Yeah. Oh, uh-huh. that would be fun. Yeah. Um, yeah, he eventually left the Baptists and, and left organized religion. But, um, but we, we tend to think that, um, you know, from, from the very beginning, it was Christians that formed the nation and that this ideal of, of religious liberty uh, was inherent in uh, who we were. Wasn't true. Wasn't true. It was true I mean, for their particular group. Right. But if you didn't agree with their particular group, kicked out yeah. or persecuted yeah. or hung, yeah. Yeah. burned. Mm. So um, again, uh, uh, so so certainly Christian roots. Yeah. Um, but not um, Christian Christians with a broad religious liberty. Yeah. And we could almost say similar to the Founding Fathers, although maybe not as strong as uh, believers. Then the Founding Fathers we would certainly not have called evangelicals. I mean, that's part of the myth as well. Right. Uh, a lot of people look at them and they, they hear the language of providence mm-hmm. and creator, yeah. and that sounds pretty Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them would not be evangelicals. They would not. They would not attend Waterstone. <laughs> right. They were they were what we call deists. Uh-huh. They, they, were. they they believed in God. Yeah. God got things started. Mm-hmm. He created them, and uh, you know the, this idea of the clockmaker. Yeah. He wound it up, yeah. threw it out there, and let it go, yeah. but was not active in everyday life. Correct. Uh, I've been reading a great book called Scandalous Witness by Lee uh, Camp, and he, he has a chapter that's, uh, that America has, has never been a Christian nation. Uh, he, he alludes, for instance, to the Treaty of Tripoli, 
uh, ratified in Congress in 1797 under the presidency of John Adams. And it says in that treaty, quote, the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. And then we all have heard stories about Thomas Jefferson, who did not believe in the divinity of Christ and produced, up his Bible. Yeah, produced his own version of the uh, New Testament that eliminated uh, anything that had a miracle or... Anything uh, supernatural. Exactly, yeah. Um, and then there's letters even to uh, back and forth between Jefferson and Adams where they, they really go on to articulate the value of religion and that it produces good citizens for a government but uh, no sense of having any kind of uh, personal relationship with God. It was more of a pragmatic relationship with religion. And then, you know, I I think it's always interesting to point out that, you know, in our currency and God we trust was not placed on the coins, our coins, until 1864. Uh, And then in the Pledge of Allegiance, one nation under God was not placed until the Eisenhower administration in 1954. And even Eisenhower had a fairly tepid response. He once said, when someone asked him about it, our government has no sense... our government has no sense unless it is founded in a deeply felt religious faith. So stressing the importance of religion. And then he said, and I don't care what that faith is. <laughs> <laughs> so again, just the exercise of religion is healthy for a government was has been kind of the view of uh, American leadership. That's right. Um, and and we, we also tend to think that America was always Christian, mm-hmm. not just in its founding or in its ethos, but in the number of people that were Christians, yeah. And uh, if we if we take a deeper dive into that, we find out that through much of our history, it was really a very small majority of people that belonged to churches. Yep. So you've got a figure from seventeen percent from Rodney Stark, uh, who teaches up at the University of Washington. That is it, in seventeen seventy six. Uh, I think the 13 states, he, he estimates 17% were churched. Yeah. Now, some of that has to do with the lack of clergy and the lack of church gathering places. That's right. Uh, but yet, again, we think of it as everyone was a Christian in the early days. Well, That's right. 17% churched. Yeah, and uh, especially as you get into the American frontier, um, I've seen a figure from 1820 in Kentucky that had uh, fewer than 10% of the uh, people of uh, Kentucky that were Christians. Yeah. That was the West Coast back in the day. <laughs> it, was, it was close to that. Yeah. And, and the further west you go, you know, if we talk about Colorado, yeah. you know, it was a pretty godless place. Yeah. And so um, this idea that, that uh, America has always been Christian and that most people were Christians, or, or at least members of churches, uh, is also part of our mythology that's not really true. Mm-hmm. So how would you summarize, like, answering that question, is America a Christian nation? Well, the short answer, in in my opinion, is no. Yeah. Uh, We certainly have Christian roots. Christian roots. I I think we are in some ways exceptional in that, Mm -hmm. in that uh, Christianity has had a deep influence Mm -hmm. uh, on on politics and and society Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that probably is unique, certainly as a new country. Uh, It hasn't by any means influenced everything. You know, there's a lot of dark stories in our history as well Mm -hmm. that would uh, seem to indicate that Christianity didn't have much uh, influence. uh, You were were singing Hamilton earlier. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. yeah, if you if you know, we, we had lots of divisions uh, in the early days as yeah, well. We did, and uh, you know, our treatment of of uh, African Americans and of Native Americans, mm. uh, you don't see a whole lot of Christian influence there. Although, oftentimes those behaviors were justified mm-hmm. by Christians using the Bible yeah. in ways today that we would say were totally illegitimate. Yeah. Um, but uh, but there has been Christian influence, there has. and if we look at revivals, which yeah. uh, have had a huge influence, yeah. so the the first Great Awakening in the in the middle part of the 18th century and the second Great Awakening in the middle of the 19th century, um, some of these really small numbers got big, yeah, yeah, and uh, and in many ways. Um, uh, America in the 20th century was a lot more Christian than it was in the early days. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you were even saying how hopeful that is. We were, we were had a sense of uh, even joy about, you know, the rise of the nuns today and very uh, evangelicalism in decline. Denver, I've heard, under five percent now evangelicals, mm. um, and yet we've had history uh, in our nation when yep. it's been that low, and revival has come and. Exactly. I think there. I think we have more cause for hope uh, with a historical perspective than we do if we just look at today. Yeah. Uh, if we right. look at today, it feels like decline, and we're losing our young people, and we've got this growth of the nuns, and and um, you know we're you know the church around the world's growing, but we're not. Yeah. yeah. Well, if we look um, in history, we've had these times in our country before. We have. And God has brought revival, and has turned things around. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think we can still pray for revival. Yeah. Yep, the, the God is still at work, and, and despite what looks pretty pessimistic, yeah. uh, the apocalypse isn't necessarily about to begin. Right, that's right. There's power in the gospel. Yep, yeah, exactly. So as we wrap up, Scott, just two brief questions. One, taking all this in, and uh, this journey, quick journey through history, where does our hope lie? Where do we keep focused on uh, moving forward, and what what continues to pull us through, in your in your opinion? Yeah, I think we have to. I have we have to remember we're citizens of the kingdom of God. Amen. Yeah, we're not primarily Americans. Um, if we go back to uh, e- even even the early days, uh, if we go back to Justin and Tertullian and and the author of this other letter. Um, you know, we're citizens of this world, but we're not ultimately citizens. Yeah. We're at home, but this is not our final home. Yeah. Uh, and so our calling is to live out the gospel, it is. not to live out any particular um, political stance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, certainly we can have political convictions. We can. And, and we, we ought should. to exercise those. Yeah. But that shouldn't be our ultimate identity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I hear you say our, our, our calling is not necessarily to build a Christian nation. It's to demonstrate the kingdom of God within our nation. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So um, Billy Graham is somebody we kind of skipped over, but yeah. um, he, in, particularly in the 70s, was closely identified, um, particularly with Richard Nixon, mm-hmm. and was kind of an informal advisor for him. And uh, in later days, he, um, he apologized for that. Hmm. Uh, he was asked, what would you do differently? And he said, I would have steered clear of, of politics. Um, but he said, um, 
uh, it's, it's, it would be unfortunate if people got the impression that all evangelists or evangelicals belong to this uh, moral majority. It says, I don't wish to be identified with them. I'm for morality, but morality goes be, beyond sex and human freedom and social justice. Uh, Evangelists can't be closely identified with any particular party or person. We have to stand in the middle to preach to all people. Wow, left that's and quite right. A yeah, um, I think yeah. that's that's where we're called. Yep, and that's where hope lies. Yeah, yeah. yep. And then the last question: how, how do you? How should we engage then? And you can, that's part of what I think you answered with Billy Graham. But other thoughts on just where where Christians should be engaging in the political system. <sighs> Well, we need to vote. Yeah, we do. <laughs> uh, we need to vote. We need to in, engage. I mean, not everybody, I, I don't think, needs to be a, a political activist. Right. Um, I think, yeah. you know, our calling is to live out the gospel in whatever way we can. Yeah. Um, you know, I think you guys did a, a, a good job in uh, this week's podcast with, you know, the issues we need to think about. Yeah. How, how do we engage? Yeah. Um, I came across, and we can wrap up with this. Um, this is uh, from the a recent Christianity Today magazine, which actually Billy Graham was one of the founders yep. uh, years ago. Um, uh, the author's name is Bonnie Christian, who is a political uh, 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 journalist. And she says uh, that it sh- the church voice should be prophetic more than prescriptive. Mm. And I really found that encouraging. She says, I hope to imitate Old Testament prophets decrying injustice more than K Street lobbyists proffering themselves as sources of solutions. Yeah, uh, That's not to say I don't have policy recommendations, but as Chuck Colson once wrote in Christianity Today, 1998, Christians are generally on sure ground serving as society's conscience than collecting power for themselves as arbitrators of polity de- decisions. Well said. Uh, I, I, yeah, I found that very well said and, and helpful. That uh, you know, our role is, is to be a prophetic voice within the culture. Um, we don't get down into the weeds always of policies. And uh, as I said in a sermon that I preached recently, our primary calling is to make disciples. That's not right. Policy. So. And and we can be that prophetic voice from uh, either side of the political spectrum. Good point. We can. Scott, it's been so great to talk. I felt like we were at the Cheesecake Factory having dinner (laughs) and having a good conversation. Thank you so much, not only for this time of podcasts and bringing this uh, to to our church now, but for 30-plus years of ministry with with Waterstone. We're grateful. Thanks, Scott. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Monday Morning Phone Call podcast. We hope that this show will spark conversation and that you'll share this episode with a friend. This podcast is hosted by me, Paul Joslin. Today's show was edited and mixed by Phil Nelson, produced by Emily Kloss, and the graphic was designed by Lane Gerkink. Thanks to Larry Renault for taking over the, the episode today and interviewing Scott Klingsmith, who brought a great perspective uh, to share with us. We hope it was helpful, and we'll see you back with another episode in two weeks.